Well, good morning. Good morning, everybody. How you doing? All is well in the tent? Oh, yeah. So uh, I had to give you a little update. Um, many of you know I have four boys, ages 11, 9, 7, and 5. And uh, my wife has continued to request that we add a girl to the family. And so on Friday, she drove three hours up north to Arcadia Bluffs and brought this home. She weighs five pounds. Her name is Hazel, and no, I have not slept well. So that's kind of how that goes. Hey, we are uh, in the last week of a series that we've called Find and Follow. Um, and it's, what we wanted to do this summer is to take some time and remind ourselves of the story right at the heart of Keystone's mission to help people find and follow Jesus. Keystone was started uh, almost 25 years ago now, which is, uh, seems like a long time, because it is. But anyway, uh, by a group of friends who believed something that was so, so critical that they wanted their friends, their neighbors, their community to hear it too. And we'll put it up on the screen. It goes like this, that following Jesus makes you better at life and makes your life better. And I said that backwards, right? But following Jesus makes your life better and makes you better at life. These are a group of individuals had tasted some of this in their own life, wanted to create a place where their friends, their neighbors could come that would remove all of the obstacles to a relationship with God except for the cross of Christ. And what would it be like if, if we created a space where people could come and learn what it means to find and to follow Jesus? And, and so we've been sort of unpacking that over eight weeks this summer by looking at the original accounts of Jesus' life. There are four of them in the New Testament of your Bible, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. These were all letters written to people in the ancient world to help them understand what Jesus did and what Jesus said. Anything you've ever read or heard that Jesus said came from one of these four sources, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And in these accounts, we discover what Jesus had in mind for his followers and also what Jesus had in mind for his church. And so to get us going uh, with our conversation today, I want to make an observation. Just I've been a pastor now for over 20 years, which also feels like a long time because it is. But anyway, here's my observation. Spiritual conversations can happen anywhere. Have you noticed? Uh, sometimes they happen when we're least expecting them to happen. But you might be at a coffee shop, in a living room, on a plane, a train, an automobile, and the person sitting next to you from one reason or another feels led to open up about the deeper questions of life and faith and God and where is it all going. And so one of the things I've noticed, because people often end up finding me for these sort of conversations, and what's hilarious for me, I've often said I'm like, like flies to a bug zapper, they come, uh, because often it's, they don't know that I'm a pastor, but we just sort of end up sitting next to each other, and they sort of open up, and then I'm like, isn't this interesting how that works? But anyway, one of the things I've noticed, um, especially when I am with people who don't regularly attend church, and they end up engaging in a spiritual conversation, is that a lot of the people who don't attend church do believe in God, but they also believe that God would want nothing to do with somebody like them. Maybe you've had friends in your life like this, but they say things like, you know, my life is, has been, and likely will continue to be a hot mess, right? I've gone too far. I've done too much. I mean, God can't use someone like me. And they say, you know, if I were to walk into the doors of your church, I'm confident the roof would fall in, right? And, and, and then if the roof fell in, you know, you'd have to rebuild and you'd probably have to meet in a tent for a while and that would be awful. So, there, you know, that's how that goes, right? 
But, but I believe that my past, my past mistakes, my past missteps, my past sin has really disqualified me from a relationship with God. I mean, I have made a mess of my marriage. I cheated and the marriage crashed and now I'm living in sort of the rubble of that, that decision. I not only hurt myself, I hurt lots of other people. I mean, my kids, I, I wasn't who my kids needed me to be and now I don't have a, a relationship with them really at all. They won't even talk to me. Or maybe I've been irresponsible with my finances and it led me through this bankruptcy. I mean, I'm broken. My instincts at the core are broken. I'm just not very good at being a human. I'm not the kind of person that God would ever want to be with. And what's interesting is I always ask people when we have this conversation, you know, where did you get this idea from? And they almost always say the same thing. They say, well, I, I kind of picked it up in church. <laughs> It was someone like you, and I'm always like, oh, right? Like a professional religious talking person, right? And, and, or maybe it was not the pastor, maybe it was an elder, maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a small group leader, but they just got the sense that because of what they did, the church would have nothing to do with them, and it's a very short connection in people's minds and hearts from the church wants nothing to do with me to God wants nothing to do with me. And in these moments... And again, they're often vulnerable, but in these moments, whether it's on a plane, a train, an automobile, a coffee shop, a living room, I always say the same thing. I always say, in God's eyes, your failure is not final. In God's eyes, your failure is not final. That's our big idea for today. And I, honestly, some of you, that, that may be worth the drive in, right? Your failure is not final in God's eyes. Whatever is in your past, he is not done with you. In fact, I believe with all my heart that God wants a relationship, not just with people in general, but he really does want a relationship with you. Even after what you've done, even after what you said, even after you were unfaithful, even after you let everyone down, including yourself. He wants you to take a step in his direction. He wants you to follow Jesus. And the fact that you feel unworthy is actually a fantastic place to be, even though it doesn't feel like it. Because you're set up for an authentic encounter with the grace of God. You know, and I'll often, you know, get done and I'll get off my soapbox. And they always ask the same question, like, where did you get that idea? Like, that really does sound too good to be true. Where in the world did you get that idea? And I always smile and I say, um, I got it from Jesus. And then I share with them what I want to talk about this morning. Because the New Testament actually contains the account of a close friend of Jesus who denied him during the most vulnerable time of his life. And then we get to see Jesus interact with him after this denial. And by watching how Jesus treats him, I think we can get a sense of how Jesus would want to treat us in those moments when we fail to meet his expectations or our expectations. So as we enter the story, uh, just a little bit of context, God has done something that no one had been expecting. After a brutal death on a Roman cross, Jesus has appeared to his disciples. And feelings of disbelief and confusion have been sort of washed away in an instant by a Jesus who is very much alive. As you need to know, no one was expecting that. I mean, Jesus' disciples thought that when he died on the cross, his story, his impact, and his movement were over. They had hoped he was the promised one who would restore Israel to prominence and prosperity on the world stage. They had believed he was the one. They had thrown their lot in with him, believing they were going to get to be the inner circle of the most powerful man on the planet. 
They had watched as he healed the blind. They watched as he opened the ears of the deaf, as he lift lame people to their legs and they stood for the first time. They had heard him teach. They watched how the crowds responded. They believed he was the one. But see, Jesus also said he was the son of God and sons of God can't be crucified. And Messiahs can't be murdered. The Hebrew people were looking for this anointed one called the Messiah. So they were confused. They were disappointed. They were frustrated. But then on that first evening of that first Easter Sunday, everything changed. Jesus appears to his disciples and he envisions them and empowers them and gives them a mission that will drive them for the rest of their lives. In fact, they would go to their graves proclaiming this mission. And you just got to imagine the energy in that room. We thought it was the end, but it's actually just the beginning. We thought it was over, but things are just getting started. And you just imagine how those disciples were feeling. They had to be so excited. Like they, they thought it was game over, and now, now it was just getting started. You know, they, they, were all ex- they weren't all excited. Because there was one guy in the room that night uh, and he was excited that Jesus was back, but he had, some, he had some relational tension with Jesus, and he wasn't sure that Jesus really wanted him to be a part of the movement anymore. He wasn't sure Jesus could ever trust him again because he had failed Jesus, and he wondered if his failure was final. There was a man named Peter, and Peter had publicly denied Jesus at Jesus' darkest hour. Uh, They had had a conversation uh, a a little bit before the denial at the Last Supper, and fortunately, Leonardo da Vinci was there and, and, you know, painted a picture for us so we know kind of how that looked. Um, It was kind of awkward. Everyone was on the same side of the table, so if you had to pass the salt, it didn't work well at all. But anyway, uh, during this Last Supper, uh, Jesus, Jesus, uh, Peter makes a proclamation to Jesus, and Jesus makes a prediction back at Peter. Here's what Peter said during the Last Supper. He said to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And this is a bold statement, but it's really consistent with the New Testament picture of Peter. Because when you read the accounts of Jesus' life, Peter is often like the first one out of the boat. He's the most impulsive. Uh, Most of the time, scholars argue that Peter was actually the oldest disciple. In the first century, rabbis or teachers would often call an older disciple to sort of lead the followers. And Peter sort of fits that bill to a T. Uh, He's the first one to proclaim he believes Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He's the only one who gets to walk on water. So Peter says to Jesus, man, I'm ready to go with you to prison. I'm ready to go with you to death. Jesus looks back and says this. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. And Peter would have been stunned because at this moment, at the Last Supper, he would have done anything for Jesus. I mean, he had a front row seat to the most powerful man on the planet. He believed Jesus was going to change the world and he was going to get to be a part of it. And at this moment, the idea that even before the sun went down that day, he would deny Jesus. It was unthinkable. It was impossible. But a few hours later, it happened. Moreover, as Peter is in the act of denying Jesus for the third time, Luke, who records the account for us, gives us this detail. So as Peter is in the act of denying Jesus the third time, Luke tells us, the Lord, speaking of Jesus, turned and looked straight at Peter. Ouch. (laughs) Right? We've all had that moment when we were kids where we're doing something we weren't supposed to do. Maybe you were in like the cookie jar and your mom walked around the corner and it was like dump, dump, dump. Right? Because like you thought you were going to get away with it, but then you weren't. We can only imagine what Peter felt in that moment, exposed, embarrassed, afraid, 
disappointed. I mean, rest assured, whatever Peter felt, it wasn't good. And as best we can tell, the next time Peter saw Jesus, Jesus was hanging on the cross. And as Peter absorbs this unthinkable reality, he's disoriented and he's confused, but there's something more, there's something personal because he had denied Jesus. And then three days later, against all odds, Peter had been face to face with Jesus again. I mean, he had seen the wounds. It was Jesus. He'd heard the words of hope and power and a new beginning. And did he wonder, have I gone too far? Have I done too much? Can God still use me or is my failure final? And that's sort of the context for the passage I want to explore with the rest of our time today. And and this account takes place in a different location. No longer are we in Jerusalem. We're 75 miles north on the Sea of Galilee. And literally the story is set on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and the Sea of Galilee proper. And this is significant because Peter was back at the same spot where he first heard Jesus say, follow me. And he was doing the same thing he was doing when Jesus first said, follow me. In fact, the disciples were back up on the Sea of Galilee and they were fishing and they'd been fishing all night. And a few of them had grown up fishermen, so they knew the trade. They'd been fishing all night and they caught nothing. Well, Jesus appears on the shore and tells them to throw the net on the other side of the boat, which if you've ever been fishing makes no sense, right? Because how wide is a boat? right? Oh, all the fish are just on the left, not the right. You're like, that totally makes sense. They hang out that way. Yeah. So Jesus tells them to do this and they do it. And all of a sudden they catch a lot of fish. John actually tells us they caught 153 fish, which I think is great because there's a resurrected guy on the shores and you're counting fish, but whatever, that's cool. Um, So Jesus, or John, who's also in the boat, recognizes Jesus and looks at Peter and says, it is the Lord. And check out what happens next. Here's Peter's response. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. Why did Peter get so excited to see Jesus? Some time has passed, and Peter has lived with the guilt and the shame of that denial. I think at night he's waking up and he's locking eyes with Jesus in his dreams. How could I have ever done that? And so when he gets a chance... Some time has passed since the the resurrection, but when he gets the chance, he wants to get to Jesus whatever it takes. He wants to apologize. He wants to explain. I think we've all been there, right? We all kind of have a sense of what that feels like. We make a poor choice. Then we live with a sense that we really let someone down. And we suspect we're probably never going to get to see them again. We're never going to try to have an opportunity to try to make things right. I mean, we can't go back, but maybe, maybe with our words, we can put some salve on the wounds. Maybe. And then we're at Meyer in the produce section, and we see him. And there's this impulse after the shock of seeing him, and you think, man, I, I need to get to him. I need to tell them how sorry I am. So Peter jumps in the boat. John continues his account. He says, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish. Presumably very slowly they were moving, right? When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it. Don't let the humor of that get lost on you. They've been fishing all night, haven't caught anything. Jesus is grilling some fish and and some bread. And Jesus said, come and have breakfast. And I just love this account, right? For two reasons. One, the fact that Jesus managed to find fish when they couldn't and he already had it on the grill. And the second, that a guy who just came back from the dead is hungry 
It's like, man, I have just been to hell and back. I am really hungry right now. So, yeah, man. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, when uh, John tells us, when they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, and so Jesus knows that Peter needs a conversation and an invitation. So Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, and notice he doesn't call him Peter. He's back to his name before following Jesus too. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Do you truly love me more than these? In other words, do you want to spend your days fishing for fish? Or do you want to spend your days following me and fishing for people? And you need to know this is an invitation that Jesus had made before to Peter. Same location, same setting. Peter's in a boat. Matthew gives us this account. This is again earlier in the life of Jesus. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. Nothing surprising there. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. You're spending your life fishing for fish. I have something different for you. I have a mission for you that involves taking a message of hope to people and helping them reconnect with the living God. And by his actions, Peter had broken ties with Jesus. And so Jesus finds him fishing and he basically looks at Peter and he asks him the same question that he asked him before. What do you want for your life moving forward, Peter? It's a sort of a hint of a reboot. It's a second chance. And just imagine with me what was, what was in the balance with Peter's decision. I mean, this is Peter who becomes the first pope, Peter who leads the church, Peter who today is buried under a rather insignificant structure in Vatican City known as the Basilica of St. Peter, right? This is that Peter. And so here's Jesus after the denial, after what amounted to a betrayal, saying to Peter, what do you want to do moving forward? Do you want to fish for people? Do you want to fish for fish? And so, and so Jesus asked him this question. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? He responds, yes, Lord, he said. You know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. Feeding lambs is a shepherd's business, and Jesus is inviting people to care for Peter, to care for people. He has plans for Peter beyond Peter's wildest dreams, but he wants Peter to choose his path. It's a fresh invitation to follow in spite of his denial. Jesus intersects with Peter and he says, Peter, what's your next step? Where are you going to go from here? John continues his account. And Jesus said again, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord. You know I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And it's weird that Jesus asks again and then he does it again again, which is even weirder. The third time he said, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? And John tells us Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. I mean, yeah, you know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And it's, it's strange he asked him three times until you consider the context. Peter had denied Jesus three times. So there's this parallel going on. Jesus questions his commitment three times. And then Jesus gives him a glimpse into his future. Here's what he tells Peter. He says, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. 
And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Jesus makes a difficult prediction about Peter's future. When he says, you're going to stretch out your hands, he's basically predicting that Peter will die by crucifixion. And according to church tradition, Peter was crucified upside down during the reign of Emperor Nero in the city of Rome in 68 AD. But what's fascinating about that, after the prediction, check out what Jesus says to Peter. And this is words for all of us who feel like we've gone too far, done too much, and God can't use us. So after this, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Okay, it's not going to be great when you follow me. It's going to cost you. It's going to hurt. Then Jesus says this. Then he said to him, follow me. So after the prophecy, Peter is invited again to follow. It's a fresh start. It's a reboot. Same geography, pulls Peter out of the same life and invites him to move forward. It's a second chance. It's grace. It's forgiveness. The message to Peter is that in spite of his mistakes, he's not gone too far. He's not done too much. Jesus still desires to be in relationship with him. He still desires to use his life, and he does in powerful ways. So what, you know, what do we learn from this reunion? I, mean, I think the lesson that's right at the heart of this is what Jesus wants for his church. And it's amazing news for all of your friends and mine who've come to believe that because of what they've done, God wants nothing to do with them. Here's the principle that sort of falls out of this for me. Uh, we must learn to receive forgiveness for our failures. We must learn to receive forgiveness for our failures. Whether you realize it or not, you have a trailer that you tow behind you in life. It is invisible, okay? You're like, I don't have a hitch on my Honda. No, I got it, right. You have this trailer, and in your trailer, you store your failures and your regrets and your guilt and your shame. And when the load gets heavy enough, it comes natural to believe that we are beyond grace. I could never really receive, God could never want to be with me because look what's in my past. Look what's in my trailer. I wear it on my sleeve. It affects everything I do, even when I don't realize it's there. If you don't learn to forgive, which is, you know, in the image you're unpacking the trailer, then you carry it with you. And you come to believe that your past mistakes have disqualified you from future friendship with Jesus. And here's the thing I've learned. A lot of people who still have not unpacked their trailer and received forgiveness continue to attend church. And they sing songs and they give money and they travel on mission trips and they sit in small groups. But at night, when it's just them and God, they look up at the ceiling and they wonder. I mean, there's no way God really, really wants to be in relationship with me. I am beyond grace. I believe my failures are final. And we feel like in those moments that that's true, but here's the thing. Just because we feel like something is true does not make it true, especially when it comes to a relationship with God. Because the message of Jesus, the gospel, the good news that captured the ancient world, and the message of Jesus that still captures hearts 2,000 years later is that God is a God of second chances and third chances, and fourth chances, and for a few of us, 75th and 95th chances. He's always inviting you to move forward. And that means whoever you are, whatever you've done, you have not disqualified yourself from a relationship with God 
Because a relationship with God has never been based on your worthiness. As we said before, God doesn't love you because you are good. God loves you because he is good. And this is the message. This is what you see when you read the New Testament, when you read these letters, not only the accounts of Jesus' life, but the letters written to Christians who are wrestling this thing down because it seemed too good to be true just like it does today. My favorite verse in the entire Bible is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. There's a pastor named Paul. He's writing to Christians who live in Ephesus, who are in a city where sin was everywhere and all over them. Here's what he writes. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved. Now saved is Paul's way of saying restored to right relationship with God. It's grace through faith. And understand the only thing that the people who receive this letter have in common is they've all said yes to Jesus. So he's writing this to, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. There's no room for hypocrisy here. There's no room for righteousness. It is, it's the gift of God, not by works. And I would add not by works so that you can know that you're not too far gone. Friends, if you can get this truth from your head to your heart, it literally changes everything. And it will give you the courage to take the next step of obedience as you follow Jesus. And I believe this is a critical message for you and it's a critical message for everyone who believes that their failure is final. And as I was prepping, my sense is there's a few of us here this morning that, that this is what you needed to hear. Because you came to the tent because you heard we were in a tent and you figure if you walk into the building, then the roof's gonna collapse. And, and, and that, if that's you, then this is for you. For others of us though, it's a reminder of mission. Not only mission of Keystone, but mission of, of the church bigger than Keystone. It, the message of the gospel and our world needs to hear this message more than ever. And to that end, I just want to invite you to do something very specific. Did you guys get a card when you came in? Let me see this card, the, the pretty one. Get this one? Anybody get it? No? Yes? A couple of you did? Okay, good. You got the card. Um, what I want you to do on the back of this card, um, there's a chance to think about the people who you are in relationship with who you know, believe they've gone too far, done too much, and God wants nothing to do with them. And the opportunity is to write down these people and to begin to pray for them, to begin to pray. And maybe you're like, I don't pray very well. Maybe this is the first time you prayed. That's great, right? Just pray for them. Pray that God would use you to invite them to take the next step to investigating a relationship with Jesus. And as you know, the new building opens August 12th. That would be a fantastic week to invite them to check it out. But there's also a citywide event coming uh, to Anab Awan Park, which I'm convinced needs a new name because I can never say it. But anyway, on September 8 and 9, this has been in the works for a couple of years now. Um, I was at one of the first meetings of a group of pastors and talking about making this happen uh, for our city. It's called City Fest, and it's going to be huge uh, downtown. And there are a bunch of you know, our music artists that are coming. There's like BMX people coming, doing things that no one should do on bikes, but they somehow do and live to tell about it. And then there's going to be a clear presentation of the gospel by a guy by the name of Louis Palau and his son, Andrew. And they are uh, sort of like the Billy Grahams of Latin America. That's what I've been told. So um, I've got a one minute video I want to show you uh, just to kind of prime you for this event. Um, and then I will close us in prayer. So let's watch this together. 
There's a story being told throughout our nation that the church is no longer relevant, that religion is dead. But God tells a different story. When the church unites around Jesus to love the city, to share his hope, to make him known, he moves. Lives are changed. The story is rewritten. It starts right now as we come together as one body to share the good news. As we actively pray for our friends, our family, our neighbors, our co-workers, as we share the hope of Jesus through CityFest. Together, let's help our region experience Jesus in a fresh way, through prayer, through service, through the clear proclamation of the gospel. It starts with you. We have the hope our city needs. Let's not hold back. Start praying now for your friends, your family, those who don't yet know Jesus. It's time to share the good news throughout West Michigan. It's time for City Fest. Look cool? I'm telling you, yeah. It, it, uh, you'll hear a lot more coming in the next few months. But uh, for today, just the opportunity to take this home with you and write down some names. If you're like five, I can't do five. Do one. You know, do two. If you're an overachiever, you could do 12. I don't know. Jesus had 12. I'm just saying. You could do 12. And uh, yeah, and just begin praying. And then also uh, be watching for an opportunity to invite. And again, there'll be more tools that we'll have that, that um, will be available if you want to. They have like a ticket that shows who's going to be there. It's really funny because it says no ticket needed for entry. And I'm like, and yet you made tickets. That's awesome. Anyway, um, yeah. So uh, let's, uh, let's see what happens uh, as we, as we sort of engage with this event and, and we move into our new building. So why don't you stand and I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, we just say thank you once again for the incredible disruptive message of Jesus. That whoever we are, whatever we've done, we are not too far gone. Your grace meets us where we're at and invites us to move forward. We thank you that forgiveness is available. We thank you that you have a future plan for us and that that future starts right here and right now. And we pray for our friends who don't know you, who are suspicious of church and suspicious of religion, and I pray that you would open doors for conversations, you would continue to cultivate a heart for people who are far from you in this community, and we can only imagine the stories that will be told as we move into our new home this fall. And so we thank you, we bless you, we love you. In the matchless name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week.